<laughs> Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Before we get started with today's speaker, uh, we have a little update from the culinary medicine program. Each week, you know, we do a quiz, and we talk about that at the very beginning of Medical Grand Rounds. The topic is from the Culinary Institute's Culinary Medicine's program from the week before, and last week was a focus on legumes. This week, as you saw there in today's breakfast, it's on um, uh, low-impact eating, in other words, low in the food chain. So you have some wonderful fruits and vegetables here today. But the topic last for the quiz from last week was name your favorite legume. There were uh, many correct answers. We picked one randomly, and the answer was lentils from Lisa Stevens. So Lisa, come up and get your prize. The prize today, this is from Cedar Circle Farm, and it's a, a package of Hutterite soup beans, and with it comes some wonderful bean recipes from some of our folks in the culinary medicine program. So there you go. Thank you. You know, we do that program because we are trying to educate ourselves about healthy eating, and it's just been a wonderful thing every Grand Rounds this year. I'm going to briefly introduce you to Arnold Katz. You know, in academic medicine, we sometimes refer back to the days of giants. And, I, and these are folks who were superb in their clinical care, in their education and teaching of others, but also in the capacity of creating new knowledge. And today we have a real giant with us, and I think we are so fortunate to have Arnie Katz with us at Dartmouth here at this time of his career. Arnie was born in Chicago. He studied natural sciences and got a degree in honor, with honors at the University of Chicago. He graduated cum laude from Harvard Medical School and stayed in Boston for his internship and residency training at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He did cardiac and cardiology training at the Institute of Cardiology of the University of London, studying under Paul Wood. He received research training both from his father, Lewis Katz, and also from Christian Anfinson at the National Institute of Health, and also from Professor Mo Meritz at UCLA. He rose through the ranks. He was an assistant professor first at Columbia University in New York, and then an associate professor of both medicine and physiology at the University of Chicago. He left there and became the first Philip and Harriet Goodhart Professor of Medicine uh, at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City, and was there until he was drafted to go to the University of Connecticut and open their initial cardiology unit when that medical school, I guess, was formed, and stayed there through his career, becoming an emeritus professor there, developing a world-class cardiology service there. And from that was also drafted and has given two lectures a year at Harvard Medical School on physiology of the heart uh, to this day and has continued through last year as a visiting professor there. And we are delighted that he is an honorary professor of medicine in our department. So all of that is a, a fabulous career, a career that was dedicated to major studies. His research was on the role of calcium in cardiac contraction, <clears throat> excitation contraction coupling and relaxation and the actions of lipids on membrane structure and function. I won't go into all the details of it, but he's documented his work in more than 400 pieces of either peer-reviewed literature or book chapters or two tomes for, on which he has his name, one under the fifth edition this past year. Uh, a true uh, uh, renaissance, but giant among us in all of the things he's done. He has also received numerous awards for his research and for his teaching, and for that, we are in for a big treat today as well. You'll see why the class last year at Geisel chose him to be their class day speaker and uh, uh, for, uh, uh, at the event the day before class day. And um, Dr. Katz, we are so delighted to have you with us. Come tell us about two kinds of heart failure. Boy, that, that's a hard introduction to live up to, but I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, I just want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to carry on. I've been giving grand rounds on heart failure for about 20 years here. And this one is a nice mixture of history, 
where, where are we, and a little bit of speculation. So systolic and diastolic heart failure, where are we, how do we get here, and where are we going? And this is the usual boilerplate. I, am, I often discuss off-label uses of drugs, but I'm not selling anything. I have no conflicts of interest. I'm not employed. I do everything because I enjoy it, and uh, I guess I'm fortunate. Uh, the learning objectives have been spelled out, and you can read them at your leisure. They're in the uh, handout for this uh, talk. Systolic and diastolic heart failure. They're often viewed incorrectly as two parts of the same disease, differing only slightly. But these are, in fact, very different, very distinct physiological entities. And by the end of this talk, I hope that you'll understand this in terms of the clinical application of this basic knowledge. This follows a general illustration that things that look similar can actually be very different. Uh, here, when you walk through the woods here, you'll see this little fella, and you'll see this little fella. And they look similar, but boy, they're very different because you walk through one of them, and you get this rash. And of course, this is Virginia creeper, and this is poison ivy. So things that look similar can be very different. Another example, here's a right upper lobe and an infiltrate. Uh, they seem to be the same, but if you don't know what you're dealing with, you can't really treat them properly. Uh, gram stain this sputum. I guess nobody gram stains sputa anymore. We used to do that uh, in the emergency room, make the diagnosis about 10 minutes after the patient walked in. And that is, of course, pneumococcal pneumonia. This right upper lobe infiltrate a little more long-lasting. The correct diagnostic procedure here is the zeal. Nielsen stain. Some of us have actually done these. I have. And this is tubercular pneumonia. This, in fact, is not pneumonia. It's gram stains and uh, bacteriology is not going to help you. This is lung cancer. So things that look the same can be very different. And that's what I'm going to try to make clear to you about systolic and diastolic heart failure, which has some other funny names. And I'll, I'll take a few swipes at those as we go through this talk. Let's start by saying, what is heart failure? It's, that's not a very easy diagnosis. The European Society of Cardiology, in a very wordy definition, said it's a syndrome in which patients have typical symptoms, breathlessness, ankle swelling, fatigue, and signs, elevated venous pressure, RALS, displaced apical beat, resulting from an abnormality of cardiac structure or function. The American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, are much more parsimonious with their words. Complex clinical syndrome, certainly, that results from any structural or functional impairment of ventricular filling or ejection of blood. I like that. That's a good definition, but how do you diagnose it? Uh, that is very tricky. And these are a couple of my bon mots. Diagnosis of this clinical syndrome begins with information obtained at the bedside. This is a bedside diagnosis. By a skilled diagnostician supplemented by appropriately interpreted anatomical and physiological data. There is no test for heart failure, believe me. Uh, no test, no measurement can make the diagnosis. This requires the input of a skilled and experienced clinician. That doesn't help the beginners here, but you all won't be beginners for very long. Three of my medical students are here, and uh, I thank them for their attention. Anyway, what is the heart? It's a biological pump. can be compared to a mechanical pump that moves fluid out of a leaky basement. Blood flows from the systemic and pulmonary veins into the heart, and that's the venous return. Fills the heart. And then the blood is pumped under higher pressure into the aorta and pulmonary artery, and that's the cardiac output. So that's what the heart does, and you all know this. Now, if you damage the pump, that's the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology definition, this pump doesn't work so well. And two things happen. Number one, blood accumulates behind the heart, causing the veins to be overfilled. It's like you had a leaky basement and the basement floods. The second thing, that, and that's called sometimes backward failure, and I'll pass through this definition very briefly. Then the other thing that happens is that blood doesn't go forward. Too little blood flows out of the heart to provide for the needs of the body. And that's low cardiac output. That's forward failure. And for a while, people distinguished between backward and forward failure, which is absolutely useless, because if it doesn't go in, it doesn't come out, and if it can't come out, 
there's no room for it to go in. The concepts, however, are very useful in describing signs and symptoms. Backward failure of the left heart is what most of us recognize in pul increased pulmonary venous pressure, RALS, dyspnea, pulmonary edema, PND. It's a long list. <coughs> Backward failure of the right heart, systemic venous pressure is elevated. You can see it in the neck veins. They all have to learn how to read neck veins. It's very, very useful. It doesn't cost anything. Peripheral edema and the sarca, there are a bunch of signs, and mostly signs from backward failure. And of course, forward failure is decreased cardiac output, fatigue, renal failure, other organ failure. This is a, a much trickier diagnosis. But in fact, these are not simple. Heart failure is not a simple diagnosis. These concepts, however, are of little value in describing pathophysiology. Heart that can't fill, can't eject. No place to, uh, to it, for the, if there's no blood in the heart, it can't go out. And a heart that can't eject can't fill because there's no place to put the blood that's coming in. So backward and forward failure invariably coexist. In fact, you can convert backward failure and forward to forward failure and vice versa by your treatment. Diuretics will convert backward failure to forward failure. And a Thanksgiving dinner will convert forward failure into backward failure. <laughs> So these are useless terms, but they are very useful in understanding the clinical manifestations. Pathophysiology, very briefly, because the main part of this talk is going to deal with pathophysiology. Systolic heart failure. I'm going to stay with these terms rather than the modern terms that go with ejection fraction. And you'll see why in a few minutes. Major problem is the heart doesn't empty normally. I really should change that to the central problem is the heart doesn't empty normally. And in diastolic heart failure, the central problem is the heart does not fill normally. This is now called, uh, systolic heart failure is called HIFRIF, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Diastolic heart failure is either HIFPIF or HIFMIF, silly terms and uh, sillier than you might think uh, because I'm going to launch an attack on ejection fraction. <laughs> Systolic and diastolic failure are not the same as forward and backward failure. Forward and backward failure describe the impact of a failing heart on, the, on circulation. Systolic and diastolic heart failure, as I hope you will learn, describe the heart. Epidemiology, just a little bit so you'll understand how these really are different diseases. Uh, they are distinguished by the ejection fraction. No question about that. This is an old study that, 2006, not that old. The, they took patients with the diagnosis, found the ejection fraction was quite low in systolic heart failure and normal in diastolic heart failure. The patients with diastolic heart failure tended to be a little bit older, much more often females, much more often associated with hypertension, whereas systolic heart failure is associated with coronary disease. In other words, myocardial infarction damages the heart here, whereas hypertension causes a form of hypertrophy about which we'll talk in a few minutes. So the, I should have projected these. Here's a study a few years later in which they took heart failure and divided them into low ejection fraction and high ejection fraction. Again, that's systolic and diastolic heart failure. Same differences, a little bit older for diastolic heart failure, much more often in women in diastolic heart failure, much more often due to hypertension in diastolic heart failure, and coronary disease is responsible for uh, a lot of systolic heart failure. There's a lot of story here, which I don't have time to tell. But let's look at the most important causes of these two types of heart failure. In this society, the most important causes of systolic heart failure, remember that's impaired ejection, is ischemic heart disease. And here is a scar from a myocardial infarction. And then the other, that's probably about two thirds of them. And most of the other thirds are dilated cardiomyopathy, which is sort of a grab bag of, of diseases. In the case of diastolic heart failure, where filling is impaired, you see this great big muscle-bound heart. We're going to focus on the ap virtual absence of the cavity. That is hypertensive heart disease, and that explains the, a lot of the epidemiology. The little old lady with hypertension in the nursing home was opposed to the guy who's about 20 years younger who's had a myocardial infarction. These are the two most common causes. And then you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is worth about three lectures. Uh, molecular familial diseases. 
But there are many less common diseases that cause both heart, both heart failure syndromes. But I really have to go on because I want to give you an overview and again convince you that you've got to know what you're dealing with if you're going to treat these patients. Prevention, just a word on prevention. Systolic heart failure, you can't do much to prevent a familial cardiomyopathy, but you can reduce the atherosclerosis risk factors. That's another lecture, and you all know these. And that reduces the likelihood of a myocardial infarction. Diastolic heart failure, you want to treat hypertension. That's the key to this. Reduce atherosclerosis risk factors, that's good for hypertension. Uh, not to reduce atherosclerosis, that's on this side. But these, uh, some of these problems are also associated with hypertension, exercise, weight loss, diet. So there's, this is material you know, but I should just mention it so we don't lose sight of the big picture as I get into this molecular stuff that's going to be the bulk of the talk. Treatment, I'm going to say a lot at the end of this talk. The abnormal hemodynamics, that's what the heart is failing to do and pumping adequately. They are quite similar in systolic and diastolic heart failure. I mean, the circulation is a circulation. It's usually improved by arterial or vasodilators, that is the hemodynamics, and they reduce afterload by lowering the blood pressure. And it's improved by diuretics, which reduce the preload by getting rid of salt and water using the kidneys. So the hemodynamics are easy to treat. I should point out that none of these treatments is directed to the heart. They're directed to the peripheral circulation. What about the heart? Well, that's become clear as we've come to think more about diastolic heart failure. The prognosis is, it's not that much different in systolic heart and diastolic heart failure, except that the treatment to improve prognosis. There are many drugs and procedures now that improve prognosis in systolic heart failure, and I'm gonna list them. I'm not gonna discuss them for lack of time. But in diastolic heart failure, as you're going to see, none of these treatments have been shown to have a significant benefit. Heart failure is not heart failure. That's the real message of this talk. Okay, 10 minutes, and we're into the main part of the talk. This is an historical talk, because if you don't know where we've been, it's hard to know where you are, and it's almost impossible to predict where you're going. And I'm gonna start in the 19th century, going through uh, two types of hypertrophy, talk about mechanical stress very briefly. There's some brilliant papers that were, book chapters written uh, in the second half of the 19th century. Briefly, the concept of systolic diastolic heart failure. Then we're going to go into sarcomere addition, which is largely responsible for these differences in architecture of the heart. And then uh, the attack on ejection fraction. I'm going to tell you what it is you already know, but I don't think you know as much as you should know, and hopefully you will when I'm done. And then we're going to get to the end of the last century and the beginning of this century. We're talking about molecular biology. And then finally, therapy and prognosis, which is what you want to know, is how do you treat these things? And then just a quick one slide, let's look ahead and see if we can guess where the treatment for diastolic heart failure may come. So let's begin with dilatation. And it used to be called just hypertrophy, and I'm going to call it hypertrophy. But I'm really talking here about concentric hypertrophy. And this all begins, it really begins with Lancisi in Italy uh, in the end of the 18th century. But Corvisart published a book in which he distinguished two types of heart failure. It's a beautiful book, and Corvisart gets a great deal of credit. He was a physician to the first Napoleon. Corvisart said it's necessary to distinguish two species of cardiac enlargement. In the first, the heart is enlarged, its walls thickened, the energy of its action is increased. Today, we would call that concentric hypertrophy or just hypertrophy. The other type of cardiac enlargement, by enlargement, we're not talking about bigger, we're talking about heavier. The heart weighs more. In the second, there is also enlargement, but there is thinning of the walls, diminution of the energy of its action. And that is called eccentric hypertrophy, and I'm going to explain where that eccentric comes from in a few <laughs> minutes. Uh, it was called dilatation uh, in the 19th century. It's still called dilatation, and the term remodeling, and I'll come to that in a moment, is also sometimes used for the second type of enlargement. And then he goes on in this book, Corvisart goes on, the existence of these two species of enlargement is proved to the physician by symptoms different and appropriate to each. These are different syndromes. As we go through the 19th century, John Bell, the great Scottish uh, 
physician who was, I think, a, the model or somebody in his family for Sherlock Holmes. Bell writes that the heart may be too big for the system as a melancholy fact, for when it becomes relaxed, it enlarges, and as, as it grows in bulk, loses its power. That, of course, is dilatation. Dilatation weakens the heart. And everybody knew that, everybody that was thoughtful in the first half of the 19th century. It also became clear that this is progressive, so once you get it, it gets worse and worse. James Hope, 1832, when dilatation has progressed so far as to occasion morbid dyspnea, it has a constant tendency to increase. Hypertrophy, on the other hand, the second type of enlargement, is different. What is, this is Francois Aron. What is seen in the arms of blacksmiths, the legs of dancers, is also seen in the heart. In proportion, as the walls are thickened, its contractile power augments. So, Hypertrophy is probably good for you. 1870, we're moving up through the 19th century. Austin Flint, the great American physiologist, cardiologist, wrote, overload excites a more forcible ventricular action and hypertrophy is produced. The increased muscular growth for a certain period protects against the occurrence of dilatation. Hypertrophy therefore becomes an important conservative provision, first against overaccumulation of blood, that is, the heart doesn't work well, that's edema, and second, against the more serious form of enlargement, dilatation. So hypertrophy is thought of as mostly or almost entirely adaptive. However, by the end of the 19th century, it became clear that hypertrophy is also a problem. Constantine Paul, another French physician, wrote, it's frequently been said that the heart hypertrophies in order to establish a sort of compensation. This view would be correct if the hypertrophy remains stationary, but experience has shown that the excess of work imposed upon the heart finally deteriorates its fibers. That's what we see today. You overload the heart, doesn't like it. Get into the details. Now, another very interesting observation was made in the 1870s by Neumeyer and Fothergill. I'm going to show a little bit of what Fothergill wrote about the role of mechanical stress in producing dilatation and hypertrophy, something that was well recognized and then totally forgotten, just like the law of Laplace was recognized and totally forgotten. And it's been recognized more recently because in this observation uh, lies the clues as to what we're dealing with in systolic and diastolic heart failure. And I thought I'd give you, give you as an example, plucked off the web, two patients with aortic valve disease. The arrow is pointing at the dilated uh, ascending aorta. Aortic stenosis and aortic insufficiency, both of which cause the heart to hypertrophy. Left ventricular mass is increased in both patients, but the ventricles enlarge differently. And by now, you should know what it is I'm going to say. In aortic stenosis, the heart doesn't become much bigger. The cardiac shadow does not become much bigger. And that's concentric hypertrophy. The heart's heavier, but the heart has grown kind of inwardly, and the cavity has gotten smaller. In aortic insufficiency, you see that the heart is moving up to the edge of the, of the, of the uh, rib cage, and this is eccentric hypertrophy or dilatation. And the term eccentric refers to the fact that the kind of hypertrophy here, and eventually as the heart begins to fail, it does get bigger, but it looks like a bigger shadow of the same shape. <laughs> In the case of dilated hearts or eccentric hypertrophy, you see that the heart is coming mostly to the left, and the heart loses its original shape. And whereas this is concentric, concentric, this is not concentric, it's not uniform enlargement in the cardiac shadow. That's all that means. Things that one stumbles upon when you read old literature. Here's Father Gill. I mentioned him before. He talked of, he recognized that different mechanical stresses cause different types of cardiac enlargement. And he wrote in this book that I have on my shelf from my dad, he said, an obstruction without any increase in the distending force, that's during diastole, as in aortic stenosis, there is pure hypertrophy, substruction, not increased diastolic, increased systolic wall stress, pure hypertrophy, usually without dilatation. Whereas with increase in distending force, again, this is during diastole, as in aortic insufficiency, Hypertrophy is always combined with dilatation of the cardiac chambers. 
Now, what is he talking about? Well, here's a normal heart. Here's a heart with a stenotic aortic valve. Here's a heart with a leaking aortic valve. The stress is at a different time in the cardiac cycle. In aortic stenosis, the heart is pushing during systole to get blood across the narrow aortic valve. Increased systolic stress, and that gives you concentric hypertrophy. In aortic insufficiency, and I'll do that again, you see that the abnormal stress is primarily during diastole when the blood is leaking into the heart, and the heart is in its relaxed form, and that is increased diastolic stress. There's an experiment, which I'm not going to show you for lack of time, that shows that if you stress the heart during systole and diastole, you activate, delifer- you activate different signaling pathways and different MAP kinases. So this is the background for what the molecular biologists have now begun to explain at a molecular level. Let's go on. Hyposystolic and hypodiastolic heart failure, obsolete terms. I still like systolic, diastolic, but as you will see, My ancient views have been overwhelmed by the modern person who uses ejection fraction. Uh, This comes from Fishberg, 1937. He writes, cardiac insufficiency can be caused by inadequate diastolic filling of the heart, hypodiastolic failure, and the far more common ones, of course that's because of coronary disease and myocardial infarction, the far more common ones in which the heart fills adequately but does not empty to the normal extent, and he called it hyposystolic failure. Today, I would call him diastolic, systolic. So let's go on. What's the basis, the anatomical basis, for these differences in the architecture of the heart? Well, there are different shapes to the cardiac myocytes, and I'm going to show you that in a few minutes. And these different shapes reflect the ways in which sarcomeres are added as cardiac myocytes become larger as they hypertrophy. Sarcomeres can be added in series and in parallel, and you'll see some pictures in a moment. A truly remarkable paper that was pointed out to, be, pointed out to me by uh, Ellis Roulette, who is here. Ellis was a year ahead of me in medical school and used to tell me these wonderful things. This, I think it's Bunnell who saw this. He, he wrote a paper published in the American Journal of Medicine in 1965 that I think is absolutely remarkable in terms of the prescience. He observed, he wrote, in aortic and mitral regurgitation, development of a larger chamber requires muscle fiber elongation by a growth type process process that leads to an increased number of sarcomeres in series, getting longer. In aortic stenosis, the ventricle requires a thicker wall without chamber enlargement and more myofibrils in parallel to generate the higher systolic pressures. Now, you've already seen this when we looked at Fothergill's concept, you know, aortic stenosis, aortic insufficiency. Now we're talking about how fibers get bigger and how sarcomeres are added. This was a pure clinician. He was not a, not a scientist in the laboratory sense, but like all great clinicians, he was a scientist at the bedside and worked hard to understand what he's seeing as the basis for what's ailing the patient. It's a good message for you. Uh, this whole thing was sorted out finally. There was a lot of debate about all of whether this really had any meaning and nobody paid much attention till Martin Gervis, who was then in South Dakota, uh, collect, isolated individual myocytes from the hearts <clears throat> of patients and developed a way of getting the myocytes out in their normal size and shape, which was not easy. And you'll see that this is the normal volume of a myocyte and here are myocytes in the heart with concentric hypertrophy, that's hypertension, and eccentric hypertrophy or dilatation. This is from the non-infarcted part of a heart that has a big myocardial infarction somewhere else. And you see that in both cases, the myocytes are about twice the size measured as the volume of the myocytes. You see in concentric hypertrophy, the problem is that there is an increase in diameter. This is the major diameter, and if you watch that, you'll see that's increasing. So the heart's getting, the myocytes are getting thicker, whereas in dilatation, you see the hearts are getting longer. So these two different types of hypertrophy represent the consequences of different types of myocyte elongation. Now, if you think ahead, 
well, let's just look at the picture. Here is a normal myocyte, normal myocyte, normal myocyte. This is going to undergo hypertrophy. Sarcomeres added in parallel. Cells get thicker, dilatation. Sarcomeres added in series. Cells get longer. This tells us, if you stop and think, the dilatation and the hypertrophy are mediated by different molecular signals. And therein lies the clue to treating systolic heart failure, which we stumbled onto totally by accident, and diastolic heart failure, where we're still totally at sea, or almost totally at sea. Let's look. I'm doing well on time. This is a, a, from a paper that uh, Ellis Rollett and I have uh, written together, which is out for review right now. If you increase wall stress, you probably can't read this, so I'm going to read this to you. You increase wall stress during diastole, for example, aortic insufficiency, myocardial infarction. You increase diastolic wall stress. Heart gets bigger. Blood comes in during diastole. This causes sarcomeres to be added in series. Myocytes are getting longer. So cardiac myocytes become elongated. This increases the volume of the cavity. Now, with the increased cavity, this hemodynamically means you can fill better, but you have more trouble ejecting. Because the law of plus says that as the cavity gets bigger, it takes more wall tension or wall stress to achieve the same pressure. So it makes it harder for the heart to eject. But what's even worse is that this increased cavity volume sets up a vicious cycle. I, don't, I pulled this off the web. I think I better go to some of the early Christian paintings and get a devil from there. Then there's no copyright issues. <laughs> I hate copyright issues. Okay, but you see what happens is when you increase cavity volume, you have more wall stress, and now you're running around in a vicious cycle. And that's why in the early 19th century, <coughs> we recognized that once this process begins, it is self-perpetuating. What about increased wall stress during systole? Aortic, sten aortic stenosis, hypertension, we find the button. Well, here you see, you, here you have increased systolic wall stress. You have increased the wall stress during systole. It's what you need in aortic stenosis, what you need in hypertension to get the blood out against a high afterload. Here you get sarcomere addition in parallel. This causes the myocytes to get thicker, which Martin Gertis showed experimentally, or not showed in clinical in patients. And this increases wall thickness. Now, increased wall thickness hemodynamically makes it easier for the heart to eject. Cavity smaller. Law Laplace says the same wall stress gives you much more pressure. On the other hand, it impairs filling. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So this is the other kind of heart failure. This Whoops, going the right direction. This gives you a virtuous cycle because you get increased wall thickness. And this makes it, uh, this reduces wall stress and it overcomes part of the problem. So, it, but, some, but these hearts don't do well, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The mechanism for the deterioration of the heart and diastolic heart failure is totally different. Not totally different, but is, it, it, it runs on different principles. Uh, and you'll see why in a minute. Okay, now let's have some fun and let's couch our lances, get on our horses, and it's the other way around. You get on your horse, you grab your lance, and go tilting after this particular windmill of ejection. These are the way we currently distinguish systolic and diastolic heart failure. The heart is the reciprocating pump, you know, the phase of filling, phase of ejection, like the piston in an automobile. Phase of filling and the phase of ejection. Now, when I started out, it was thought that, that uh, <coughs> filling was simply, relaxation was simply the going away of contraction. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, when uh, I was actively doing research, it became clear that filling and ejection are controlled by totally different mechanisms. Movement of calcium into the cell, out of the cell, very, very different. Another two-hour lecture, which you're not going to get, except to say that biochemically, these are two very different process. <laughs> but let's just look at the hemodynamic consequences. Here's the end of diastole, the heart fills. During systole, so that's, you, get up the, you get the end diastolic volume. That's part of the equation for ejection fraction, how much is in the heart when it's filled. During ejection, some of that blood goes out. 
And the amount of blood that goes out is the stroke volume. So these are the two terms that you need to know to understand ejection fraction. What you start with and how much you get rid of. We're not going to pay much attention to what you end up with, but that's important too. What is ejection fraction and how is it calculated? You all know this. It's the ratio between stroke volume and end diastolic volume. It's the percent of the end diastolic volume that's ejected. That's all it is. But it is not as simple as you think it is. For example, if the, end, if the stroke volume is 72 and the end diastolic volume is 120, EF is 60%. Simple. However, ejection fraction is not a measurement. It's a chimera. It's the ratio between a physiological variable and an architectural variable. What am I talking about? Well, first of all, chimeras are all, that's a Greek chimera. They're all very interesting. I'd hate to meet this guy. I'm not sure how useful they are. This is one that has the head of a lion, the tail of a snake, and it's got a goat growing out of its back. That's my view of ejection fraction. So, but this is the way we tell these two types of heart failure at heart. What do we, we think we've got a measurement, we don't. We've got a cockeyed ratio here. But it is based on real data, and I'm going to try to help you to understand what the real data are that allows ejection fraction to distinguish between these two types of heart failure. Remember, stroke volume is largely determined by physiological variables. Preload, how much you start off with. Afterload, how hard it is to empty the heart. Inotropy, which is the contractile state. Lusotropy, how easily the heart relaxes. And heart rate. All of these play a role an ejection fraction. They, I'm sorry, they play a role in determining the stroke volume, which is a numerator. They also play a role in, in ejection fraction, which is why ejection fraction is an index of a lot of things in a measurement of nothing. End diastolic volume, on the other hand, is not determined by physiological variables, but by architectural variables. The length, thickness, and the number of ventricular myocytes. There are other things too, connective tissue. So very Architecture of the heart is a very complicated subject. This is a little bit simplified, but I think you can see that this ratio is chimeric. Don't for a minute believe that ejection fraction measures contractility. It doesn't. Too many variables here. That's hard to get through to a lot of cardiologists. Just like it's hard to get through to the pharmaceutical industry with whom I no longer speak, because they don't listen is that to treat heart failure, you just want to increase contractility. Silly business. But they still are developing drugs to increase contractility. It's not the problem in heart failure at all. You'll see in a moment. Anyway, ejection fraction is low in systolic heart failure. It's normal or high in diastolic heart failure. And I'll show you why in a minute. What determines the difference in ejection fraction in these two types of heart failure? These differences are due largely to differences in the patterns of left ventricular hypertrophy. That's the denominator. The numerator is stroke volume, and stroke volume is reduced in all forms of heart failure. Stroke volume goes up and down depending on peripheral resistance, depending on preload, a lot of determinants of it. The real basic difference is in the architecture. Normal, systolic heart failure, dilated heart, big bag of a heart, diastolic heart failure, this muscle-bound heart that this heart can't empty, this heart can't fill. The difference is in end diastolic volume. That's the basic, most important difference, but the most important determinant of uh, ejection fraction. Now, we could call heart, you could talk about heart failure with big end diastolic volume, heart failure with low end diastolic volume. That's better than ejection fraction. Nobody's ever going to use it. And anyway, the field is moving on now, and it's getting molecular, and I'll try to bring you up to date on that at the end of this talk. So high end diastolic volume, low end diastolic volume. Uh, let's go through ejection fraction very quickly. This is what you've already seen, normal ejection fraction. 72, you, uh, you get out, 120, you start out with ejection fraction is 60%. This is a nice slide for helping you to understand visually what I'm talking about. Systolic heart failure, big bag of a heart. You start not with 120, but with 180. That's the end diastolic volume, and you eject only 50 milliliters. 30 milliliters is what I gave you here. So the ejection fraction is 30 over 180. That's an ejection fraction of 17%. That's why in systolic heart failure, you have a low EF. What about diastolic heart failure? Here you have a low end diastolic volume. It's only 60. 
So that's EDV is 60. You start out with 60. You get rid of 30, just like here. Ejection fraction is 50%. That's why ejection fraction is normal in diastolic heart failure. You still have the same lousy stroke volume. The problem is the end diastolic volume. Well, enough of that. This is called heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, heart failure with preserved or normal ejection fraction. That's what you're going to read today. I'm not going to be able to do anything about it. I'm out of the central part of the cardiology now. I just watch with amusement. These guys running around. <laughs> However, uh, my friend and colleague and co-author in the second edition of the heart failure book I wrote, uh, uh, 12 years ago wrote, it's time for a new set of terms, a new conceptual paradigm of movement away from ejection fraction is the most cherished measurement in cardiology. Amen. <clears throat> okay, the, the abnormal EFs in heart failure are due largely to different patterns of sarcomere addition. You already see this. This is systolic heart failure where the cells are longer, diastolic heart failure, the cells are thicker. So we're beginning to draw all of this stuff together, and I hope I've given you a better understanding of these two diseases. Now let's go into proliferative signaling. And I've got about 10 minutes, and as usual, I'm going to have to speed up a little bit. But let's just look. What seems obvious? Well, this is... Uh, uh, Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights. This is what you see. You see only the heaven, or actually you see the heart failure. You see the hemodynamic abnormalities. That's what you see in heart failure. But that's not the entire story. Here is the whole hell underneath all of this. <laughs> and the rest of the story of molecular abnormalities, proliferative signal. And that's what this is. This, you can't even read this, and you don't need to read it. This is the great chart of all, not all, but some of the uh, molecular structures that participate in the signaling systems that are responsible for these different types of growth. Here you see it a little bit larger. You still can't read it all. and You don't need to read it all. What you simply need to know is this is the outside of the cell. Here's the plasma membrane with all of its receptors and channels and pumps. Here's the inside of the cell with all of the enzymes in the signaling system. And you end up in the nucleus, which is where the DNA is, and that's what changes in proliferative transcriptional signaling. Well, there's several ways that you can experimentally produce these two types of heart failure. One is to modify different plasma, plasma membrane receptors. And we're going to look here at a G-protein coupled receptor and a cytokine receptor. And one experiment, cells done, this is from Ken Chen's laboratory uh, almost 20 years ago. Normal cells, these are rat cardiac myocytes. You activate it with a G-protein-coupled receptor agonist phenylephrine, the cell gets thicker. You activate it with a cytokine, cardiotrophin-1, the cell gets longer. This is the equivalent of diastolic heart failure. This is the equivalent of systolic heart failure. It's all very interesting. It just gives you the idea that there are, in fact, signaling systems that cause the two types of cardiac enlargement. Uh, let's look also at these MAP kinases, which are in the middle of a cascade of protein kinases. And uh, this was done uh, 10 years ago. Different uh, transgenic mice that act increase one MAP kinase and another MAP kinase. That's here. Different MAP kinases signal different architectural phenotypes. Here's a transgenic where you've increased, a, increased ERK12. And you see you end up with something that looks like diastolic, uh, systolic heart failure. You increase ERK5, cell gets thicker, that looks like diastolic heart failure. Again, the whole problem in, this, in these different architectural phenotypes is in the molecular biology. Cytoskeleton, I want to spend a couple of minutes on because this is where I think the field is really going. Cytoskeleton is right here. What is the cytoskeleton? Well, here you go, a whole bunch of names you can't read any, and you're not supposed to read it except to get the idea. There are an awful lot of molecules that are involved in the function of the cytoskeleton, which senses cell deformation and maintains cellular structure. Here, by the way, are the thick filaments. That's myosin. Here's the thin filaments. This is the contractile apparatus, which is actin. These are really cytoskeletal proteins that have become specialized to make motion. But in addition to connecting cells to one another and maintaining cell structure, the cytoskeleton plays a major role in cell <coughs> signaling. 
It's as if the beams and the girders in the building also serve as a telephone system. And here's an example of how cell deformation can send a signal. Here is one type of skeletal, cytoskeletal protein. This is actin, but this is cortical actin. Here you see an enlargement of this little corner here, and there's a protein here, a signaling protein, that's very happy as long as you leave this structure alone. This is inside a cell. But if you deform the cell, you push on the cell, you push on these structures, and this protein, this signaling protein, pops out, and it activates G proteins and starts cell signaling. This is just one example of how cell deformation can send a signal. Cytoskeleton senses cell deformation. I'm going to go through these beautiful slides, a lot of fun, but I'm not going to get to the part I really think you want to hear about, which is therapy. The timing of cell def of deformation also regulates ventricular architecture, and that you've seen already in the earlier discussion of this slide, increased systolic, increased diastolic stress. This is another wonderful experiment, which I meant to leave out. Let's go now into systolic and diastolic heart failure, therapy and prognosis. Therapy that improves prognosis in systolic heart failure. We all know this. There are seven different types of therapy. ACE inhibitors, actually nitrates were the first to be discovered to improve survival. ACE inhibitors and later angiotensin II receptor blockers, they clearly prolong survival. Beta blockers, big surprise to everybody, that prolongs survival. A mineralocorticoid aldosterone antagonist prolongs survival, resynchronization, LVADs, and exercise has a modest effect, but it's real. It's been demonstrated in a couple of nice studies. The first four of these are inhibitors of neurohumeral signaling. The last three modify mechanical stressors. And they all prolong survival. What do these therapies have in common? They all inhibit progressive LV dilatation. Now, in patients with systolic heart failure, sarcomere addition in series initiates a vicious cycle. You've heard about that already. And this leads to clinical deterioration. That's that vicious cycle that causes progressive <coughs> LV dilatation. Shades of Bell, you know, uh, almost uh, more than 200 years ago. But this is the reason the treatment that inhibits progressive dilatation improves prognosis. It interferes with that vicious cycle. Nobody knew this when they used nitrates and ACE inhibitors. They thought these were vasodilators. But in fact, most vasodilators shorten survival. Just a few prolonged survival, and the ones that prolong survival are the ones that are neurohumeral blockers, not direct-acting arterial or vasodilators, but the ones that block neurohumeral signaling. And these concepts have been conceived, confirmed experimentally in rats and clinically in randomized clinical trials, and I really have to show you this experiment. This is kind of a seminal experiment. This is Pfeffer, Pfeffer and Brownwald uh, in the in 1985, <coughs> it made myocardial infarctions in rats. This is end diastolic volume and pressure, pressure volume relationship. And after an infarction, the heart begins to dilate. That's all you're seeing here. You have progressive dilatation that they called remodeling, which is an unfortunate term because when you remodel a house, it gets better. You remodel the heart, it gets worse. But what they also observed is that ACE inhibitors inhibit LV dilatation in rats. But that, the actual experiment in patients, the clinical trial came in Scandinavia and not in Boston. So ACE inhibitors, that's this, inhibits progressive dilatation. That was shown in 85. It also works in humans. ACE inhibitors inhibit LV dilatation. I'm not going to show you the data that ACE inhibitors prolong survival. Everybody knows this. But this is what ACE inhibitors do to increase in left ventricular and diastolic volume, indexes the eye. Placebo, here's the, uh, here's the placebo. You see the heart is getting bigger. You give an ACE inhibitor, in this case it's captopril, but it's a class effect. The heart doesn't get bigger. Nitrates, left ventricular and diastolic volume, Light, nitrates improve survival. Here's placebo. Here the heart is getting bigger, measuring end diastolic volume, same as before. Here is patient giving, given a long acting <coughs> dinitrate. In the case, it's mononitrate. Dinitrate is just as good. It's a heck of a lot cheaper. 
And anyway, the mononitrate makes the dinitrate. You don't need to know that. Is that correct, Lionel? The other way around. Thank you. <laughs> Always nice to have people keeping you on this. Here are beta blockers, probably the best drugs that we have to treat heart failure. Negative inotropes, that was another, that's another story. Here is the heart getting bigger in placebo. Here's the heart getting smaller. This doesn't last, of course, but it gets smaller initially with carvedilol, which is a beta blocker. Aldosterone antagonists, placebo, heart getting bigger. Spironolactone, heart not getting bigger. Bigger. Now they give you a plerinone because that's still on patent. At least it was last time I looked. What about resynchronization? Here you're seeing the change in volume. These are patients who are treated. The hearts are getting smaller. And that's simply because the patients have gone from the wilds and the jungle into the care of a good group of heart failure specialists. And boy, that makes it <coughs> But if you give them resynchronization, you see the heart gets smaller. Here, everything is getting smaller, but this is a treatment effect, but it's much greater if you give the resynchronizer. And LVADs, where you really unload the heart by putting an artificial pump next to the heart. Before the, this is a patient serving his, his, or his or her own control. Here, you see the heart gets smaller. The effect wears off in time. And there's a long story about LVAD, but they are certainly good for the short term. They make the patient feel better, and they make the heart get smaller. It was initially believed that because survival in systolic heart failure is improved by therapy that inhibits progressive dilatation, where sarcomeres are added in series, the same therapy would benefit, would benefit patients in diastolic heart failure. By now, you should be very suspicious about the truth of that experiment. Heart failure is heart failure, people used to say. People still say it. They're wrong. Systolic and diastolic heart failure are different entities. It's now apparent that patients with diastolic heart failure, where, where sarcomere in addition initiates a vicious cycle that inhibits progressive dilatation. So you already got the effect with stress during systole. Furthermore, the major causes of clinical deterioration, the poor prognosis in this syndrome are not dilatation, but hypertrophy, myocyte death, and fibrosis. Here is an old Study, this is from Huda Schopper's lab in von Neuheim. This is normal cardiac, myocy cardiac muscle. The myocytes are the black dots, the nucleus are the blue dots, and fibronectin, which is connective tissue, is in red. Here is a heart from end-stage aortic stenosis. The difference is obvious. The cells are larger, but above all, there is this huge mass of fibrosis. Now, this is aortic stenosis. Same thing is true in hypertension. When you get to the familial cardiomyopathies, it gets vastly more complicated. So, because therapy that improved prognosis in systolic heart failure also improved prognosis in diastolic heart failure. You already know what I'm going to show you. Here is the uh, Consensus One trial. It was presented in 1986 and published in 1987 that blew everybody out of the water. Here is a drug. In this case, it's analophil. It's another ACE inhibitor, but again, it's a class effect, that has actually doubled survival. 50, these patients, by the way, are very sick, but you see, you have doubled survival. They've actually, in one of the trials from that period, they have followed the patient and published the results after 12 years where everybody has died. And of course, the, the curves ultimately become the same, you know, when everybody's dead, when they're 150 years later, they're all dead. But you see, there's a huge difference at the beginning. This difference was so big that at the meeting in Oslo, Norway, where this was presented, uh, it was presented by a statistician, uh, lost his name, but he was, he was a very tough guy. And they were accusing him of being a shill for the drunk woman. He said, why did you stop this trial? He said, look, their curves are coming together. They're coming together when everybody's dead. These were very, very, very sick patients. Of course, this has stood up, and this is a class effect. It's been shown in three or four very good, very large trials. What about dies? They don't work. This is perendipril. This is the most recent one. You know, this is you've got to find one that's still on patent. So somebody's going to invest, going to invest the two hundred odd billion dollars to prove that your drug doesn't work. <laughs> doesn't work. Here's the angiotensin receptor blocker, the aldosterone receptor blocker. This is the Rouse trial. The effect is not so big, but it's been repeated in several trials, and it's real. These drugs do prolong survival in systolic heart failure. 
diastolic heart failure, no effect whatsoever. Everybody said, well, let's make a bigger trial. These get up to 5,000 patients. When you enroll 5,000 patients in a clinical trial, it tells you you're not expecting to see much difference. My dad did a clinical trial in the 1940s with penicillin for subacute bacterial endocarditis, one patient. <laughs> now, that's the N of one, but it worked. Okay, you see the, you see the difference. Spironolactone. What did I say? That's an R. So here's spironolactone. Uh, I've, I've misstated. Here's spironolactone. Because I, I was looking for beta blockers, but of course nobody dares run a trial without beta blockers now because these drugs are the best drugs we have for treating heart failure. Here's spironolactone. Clearly improves prognosis. Uh, diastolic heart failure, no significant difference. P is 0.14. So I think you've got the message. And you, by now you know what we're talking about here. This is, I'm wrapping up now. This is a slide you've already seen. Uh, what the problem is, a major problem in systolic heart failure is that the heart is dilating, and when it dilates, it sets up a vicious cycle. And so if you prevent sarcomeres from being added in series, and this now is a molecular effect at the cellular and molecular level. When you, and that's what the side effect of all these neurohumoral mediators is that you're blocking this particular response that leads to this response. The body's not so wise. In the case of diastolic heart failure, these drugs are going to reduce, they're, they're not going to have any benefit because here you've got a virtuous cycle. Anyway, it doesn't matter because the cause of deterioration in diastolic heart failure is a totally different fibrosis, cell death. So, sarcomere, I think, let me just run this all up. Systolic heart failure, sarcomere addition, it should, well, I'm gonna, I'm, my mouth is getting tired and you can read it. You've got two fundamentally different processes, therapy that improves survival in systolic heart failure, you wouldn't even expect it to improve prognosis in diastolic heart failure. Now, how to treat diastolic heart failure is among today's major unanswered questions in cardiology. What do we have to look for? I'm just going to show this with one slide. It came out of the New England Journal. It fell on my desk two weeks ago. This is a review of fibrosis. And it comes from uh, Hills Laboratory in Texas. And you see these are the signaling molecules that are involved in controlling fibrosis. Perhaps this is a target for new therapy. I don't think we know, but that's what we have to look forward to. So what I've, oh, what I've done is try to take you through more than 200 years of cardiology with gun and camera and applying to this very simple question, is systolic and diastolic heart failure the same? Now, I don't have an acknowledgment slide, but I would like to acknowledge the fact that I'm here is due to the incredibly good care that I have received from an awful lot of physicians and other healthcare profession professionals at Dartmouth. And I just want to acknowledge them. And also, at least one medical student who's sitting in the audience who got me into the hospital when I had pneumonia last summer. So uh, that's my acknowledgement. And I also, above all, want to acknowledge the help of my friend, colleague, friend of you know, for more than 60 years, Ellis Roulette, he and I have written a paper that's under review on this topic. Uh, it covers it from a different point of view, but a lot of these concepts he and I have wrestled with together. And Ellis and I, uh, he was a year ahead of me in medical school, and he, of course, was your chief of cardiology in those halcyon days when the program was just getting off the ground. So thank you very much. I usually blow everybody away. Yes. Tim, I'm curious about um, how we could recognize that the tipping point has come in the timeline of the development of diastolic heart failure. If you know that hypertension is causing us stress and, and <coughs> certain areas are proliferating in parallel, and that is at least in the beginning adaptive, but then the problems with decreased filling become problematic. It would be nice to know at what point has, have you sort of ticked over into maladaptive fibrosis and more filling, and, and what is the easy-to-measure bedside or lab or echo correlate that we can try to 
modify with drugs that would slow the, the bad side of the cycle? I had big fights with my colleagues about the tipping point. When does hypertrophy go to heart failure? Uh, there is no tipping point. It's like you're standing on a platform in a, in a lake, and the platform is slowly going down, and you're fine until your nose goes underwater, and that's the tipping point. But clearly, you have to start treating the hypertrophy, and that's where prevention comes in. And that's why you treat, in the case of the hypertensive heart disease, you treat the hypertension, and people far wiser than I will tell you how and when to treat hypertension. But as soon as you recognize that there's an abnormal systolic stress, you want to try to get rid of it. Aortic, and that's easily done with drugs. Aortic stenosis is the other cause. There, of course, you've got a, a surgical approach that has a mortality and a morbidity, and you wait a little bit longer. Anyway, this is seen in older people. The, hyper, the aortic stenosis you see now, you'll never see congenital aortic stenosis. That, that's all taken care of early on. But you don't want systolic overload for too long because you can see what's happening to the heart. But as I say, the tipping point is when your nose finally goes under the water. Or it's the guy who jumps off the Empire State Building and he goes by the fourth floor and says, gee, what a terrible situation you're in, says his friend out the window and the guy who's going down says, so far, so good. <laughs> well, you should start treating it as early as you can. And we already know that in hypertension. In the case of the familial, heart, familial hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, it's a whole other story. We don't know how to treat them. We don't even know what they are. I think these are cytos, these are all cytos, not all, but I think the major cause of this and non-compaction are cytoskeletal abnormalities. Abnormalities and mutations in cytoskeletal proteins that are causing abnormal stresses to which the heart is reacting. But yours is a very good question, and I say as soon as you recognize it in the elderly population, get rid of the systolic stress, it's not good. Blood pressure, it's aortic impedance. It is the resistance of the heart to ejection. And as we get older with normal aging, the aorta and the, and the large arteries get stiff. So when you're putting blood into them, they don't just relax and accept the blood. They're sitting there rigid. Can't do anything about that. So that's why this is a disease of the elderly. And that's why diastolic heart failure is seen more often in the elderly. And the reason it's seen more often in women is they last longer. That's not politically incorrect, is it? I know it's a big topic, but since you have your lance out, I wonder if you'd say a word about BNP. It's a number. Period. BNP is a number. It's all numbers. It's all data. That's why at the beginning, these diagnoses are based on the interpretation and synthesis of data and integration of data by an expert clinician. That's where it comes from. There is no test for heart failure. Forget it. And when somebody says the ejection fraction is normal, the patient doesn't have heart failure, I want to throw an inkwell at him, except there are no inkwells in these. <laughs> but it, there's so much sloppy thinking, and patients are hurt by sloppy thinking. We don't have good thinking. We don't have enough good thinking. But at least we can get rid of some of the sloppy thinking. And that's what I was trying to do in this lecture. Yeah, Lionel. You, you focused a lot on the signaling. On, I'm wondering if the pump thesis, it's energy pumping, and you didn't mention anything about the mitochondrial signaling progresses that may or may not be different in different types. That's another lecture. <laughs> I mean, mitochondrial abnormalities clearly impair cardiac performance. Lack of energy impairs cardiac performance. Didn't even talk in the upstream supply of energy. That's clearly very important. Mitochondria are also very important in regulating apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. And there are abnormalities of apoptosis. In fact, one of the reasons that I'm alive, not of heart failure, but is because they gave me an experimental drug that promoted apoptosis and helped my body to get rid of bad cells. I mean, this, this whole world that we have stumbled into over the last 20 years of molecular biology is it's having the same effect, it should have the same effect in cardiology 
as it does in cancer treatment. Unfortunately, it doesn't because we have too many people who see things. And you realize that there are three forms of heart disease today, arrhythmias, heart failure, and coronary disease. And the, the treatment that most people push today is mechanical in all three of them because you get paid a lot of money. You don't get paid to give an ACE inhibitor or a beta blocker, but you do get paid, paid, paid to put in a resynchronizer. Arrhythmias are defibrillators. Heart failure is, is resynchronizers. And coronary disease is angioplasty. And I understand that somebody who was very prominent in this institution once said that the problem in medicine is in the delivery because we already know enough. Well, that may be true of fields I don't know much about, but in the case of heart disease, we are at least, I think, getting on the right playing field now to get the answers to preventing these diseases rather than treating the catastrophes with mechanical devices. That's a long way for... Sorry. Preach, preach, preach. No, no, you want to no. pull me I, off? I, I thought I was catching you at the end of that. I'm I like a wanted, Sunday preacher, you know. <laughs> I, wanted there. To, I wanted to thank you for showing us that you continue with your passion through your entire career, and that is such a wonderful role model for all of us. And secondly, I want to thank you for the entertainment and just education that you provided today. Thank, thank you. you so much for doing that. Beautiful. Hold on.